Many of you will already have heard about the conference of Messianic Jews last year in Sao Paulo in, in Brazil. Okay, I think you could just press it quite a bit uh, and uh, they invited Johannes Fichtenbau and Peter Hocken to speak about the issues of the Catholic Church, the history of the Catholic Church, and the need for repentance. So this was a very moving event of, I think, several thousand people then praying for each other, and it was, I think, a, a historic event. Some of you may have already seen this on YouTube, on a small video. Uh, we have created a DVD of it, which I would like to offer to you. I treat still have three copies which I can give out, plus I offer any of you who have laptop PCs to just copy it on the PC and to redistribute this. This really shows what is possible when God's people come together, ask for forgiveness and the moving of the Holy Spirit. There's also a short interview with Johannes included, he speaks about what happened after the conference when Peter Hocken went to Buenos Aires to meet Cardinal Bergoglio together with the Messianic Jews so they shared the vision Bergoglio was very impressed about this and at the end he asked for a blessing for his trip to Rome so Peter Hocken prayed for him they forgot to pray for his return trip so he's still stuck in Rome <laughs> So, nun möchte ich besonders Richard Habe willkommen heißen und ihn bitten, dass er zu uns spricht. Okay. Good morning. Uh, thank you so much, Sister Joella, for your presentation. Zu kennst. Yeah, can you hear me in German? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, thank you so much for your presentation. We are very much on the same page. Uh, you said I have all the answers, but I don't have all the answers. I have all the questions. <laughs> and uh, so I'd really like to uh, just pray and ask the Lord's blessing on this section of our presentation and uh, I'll pray now and I'd like us to spend some time in prayer at the end of my session as well. I will lead us in some prayer. Our Father, our King who art in heaven, Lord, we come to you here in Trent and as we've already begun to reflect on some of the things that happened here, the Council of Trent and the Counter-Reformation and also, Lord, as we've just been hearing, the... Uh, the events of 1475 and uh, the accusation of uh, ritual murder from the Jews. Lord, we are coming into difficult issues, both historical, spiritual, theological, eschatological. Lord, we are touching something of the very heart of the mystery of the schism in the body of Christ between Israel and the nations. 
we are touching something at the very heart of the history of Europe. We are touching something at the very heart of the pain of the Jewish people. Lord, I know that it's not by might nor by power, but by your spirit that your work is done. And so I pray, Lord, that you would take the few words that I have to bring and that you would take the thoughts and the reflections of all our hearts and that you would motivate us and you would change us and you would transform us. That, Lord, even in the spiritual realm where we see such strongholds and we see such impenetrable forces of wickedness and evil that have caused such destruction and disruption in Europe and such division in the church and such blindness. Lord, I pray that by the power of your Spirit you would move some mountains here today. Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I thank you, Lord, for the Spirit that you've called us in, the Spirit of unity, the Spirit of power, but also the spirit of meekness and humility. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you, the Messiah of Israel and Saviour of the world, would continue to be present here. Lord, even as we've lifted you up in our worship, even as we've discerned, Lord, a new dimension to our meetings, that we want you to be not only the chess player who wins the game, but the inventor of the rules. And Lord, I pray that in this amazing attempt that we have here to build a process that leads to unity in the body of Messiah and unity with your people Israel that Lord even as we pray and prepare for these Wittenberg 2017 preparations Lord you would cleanse our hearts and Lord you would cleanse the paths that we have traveled both as individuals and as members of historic churches and of the synagogue and Lord, that you would do a new thing. B'shem Yeshua Mashikainu. Amen. I feel very honoured and uh, inadequate to, to speak to these subjects and to be here. And uh, I pay tribute to my brother Benjamin Berger, who is an apostolic figure in the Messianic movement and has gone before most of us, uh, standing before popes and cardinals. Uh, I also want to pay tribute to the anonymous uh, benefactor who has helped to uh, provide for some of the uh, work of this uh, group. And uh, I want to thank the Lord that I can be here as a nice Jewish boy from London, England, sharing uh, about the dark deeds of the Council of Trent in, uh, and the, uh, the trials in 1475 here. And uh, I think if I ask myself, what am I doing here? Uh, I don't really know. Uh, I didn't really want to uh, come to the first Vulcan Road meeting uh, that I was invited to, uh, but I thought I just had to come. And when I came, I, I was so deeply moved by, by both the vision of uh, the Vulcan Road, the reconciliation, and also by the pain of, of going to... Um, the uh, Buchenwald uh, forced labor camp, uh, that I found that my direction uh, has been changed and I'm on a sort of similar track to what you are trying to do in this two th Wittenberg 2017 meetings. Just a little bit of background, uh, and I put the uh, Vulcan Road at Oak there. Uh, it's a prophetic symbol, but I'm not sure what. <laughs> 
So I leave that to the... By the way, it's, I, I just pray, even as we had our dynamic of worship this morning, I sense a releasing of giftings and a releasing of the work of the Spirit in our midst. And of course, we come from so many cultural backgrounds and languages and traditions that, that it will take a lot of building in, in our unity to, to really see this. But unless our work goes forward in a, as, a play, as a, the work of prayer and the work of the Holy Spirit, we are not going to be able to bring any new wisdom and see any strongholds broken down. But I was transformed, I have to say, by being at Volkenroda. Uh, and I'm now, you know, every time you invite me to this, I come to a place where, where Protestants and Catholics were fighting each other, and at the same time they fought the Jews. So uh, as a Jewish believer in Yeshua, I think there's a vital part of, of being in this process and even as uh, Johannes Fichtenbaum said yesterday, you know, what better way to unite Catholics and Protestants than with a celebration of the Jewish Shabbat? And what way to unite us... Am I talking too loud? Too fast. Thank you. I'm Jewish. I talk with my hands. <laughs> okay. I will try to slow down. Danke schön. Uh, the uniting of Catholics and Protestants in the worship of Israel, and even this morning with Shachar and the beautiful worship, you know, it's not your tradition, but it's the Messianic Jewish tradition, and that can unite even Catholics and Protestants, and maybe the Orthodox as well, I don't know. Uh, and then, of course, we as Messianics, we're a young group, we think we know it all, and uh, we need to repent of our arrogance and uh, learn from uh, our mistakes and others. So my family, a background, I'm really a German Jew who happened to escape through 20 miles of water when my great-great-grandparents uh, came from Westphalia to uh, Essen. And uh, my, my great-grandfather, Richard Hirschland, I'm named after him, came to London, but when the synagogue in Essen was built in 1905 or something like that, uh, he was one of the signatories, and uh, you can see the brothers Hirschland London were there in London giving money for the synagogue in the, uh, Essen. And uh, then, of course, Christanacht and uh, the destruction of the synagogues and the properties and the homes of Jewish people. So I'm fortunate that because my great-grandfather and two of his brothers had come to England, they survived. The brother and his family who stayed didn't survive, and of course many others didn't survive either. So uh, in Essen, that's my great-grandfather Richard Hirschland, and uh, that was the family home, and that was the family bank. It's now a department store, and uh, all we got was a railway station and uh, a public square, so uh, I would rather have the bank and the home. Uh, <laughs> but we got given a, an underground station and a public square. Are you following? Am I going too fast? Yes. Or? I am still going too fast. <laughs> I will slow down. So <laughs> this is the background. Now, I'm looking at Luther, and I'm looking at his use of the Judensau, the Jewish swine or Jewish pig, and also at the martyrdom of Simon of Trent. And, of course, there was always anti-Jewish slander. 
in the history of the church. At Volkenroder, I spoke about the parting of the ways. And for the church to define itself as not Jewish and not pagan, you had to enter into dialogue and apologetics with the pagans and you had to challenge the Jews about the messiahship of Yeshua and you attacked them using rhetoric and oratory to prove them wrong. So there is lots of anti-Jewish invective. And Luther did not really invent this. But in the 80 volumes of materials that have been produced, the works of Luther, it is seeped in anti-Judaism and anti-Jewish invective. I will talk a bit about the book I'm trying to write on Luther and the Jews. The scholars debate, where did Luther get his anti-Judaism from? And was it because he had a stomach ulcer? (laughs) And was his insults against the Jews any worse than his insults against the Pope or the Muslims, the Turks? And the answer is, he inherited a strong tradition of anti-Judeos. And then he made it worse. (laughs) So I put him in the Star of David there. (laughs) But Luther's books throughout his life, beginning with his commentary on Genesis and Psalms at the beginning and going right towards his final polemical works are seeped in anti-Jewish polemic. Now, I am a great admirer of Luther. I'm Jewish. I love arguing with people. (laughs) And if you want to argue with somebody, you find someone like Martin Luther who is one of the greatest minds of the European tradition. Invented the German language, although, well, translation. Uh, Was the founder of Protestantism. So I have to ask myself questions about where does he get this from? And I suppose his main question is, how can I find a gracious God? How can I know that God loves me and accepts me? Isn't that a wonderful question? And he goes back to scripture and he finds that though I lived as a monk without reproach, sounds like the Apostle Paul, blameless, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately, without stopping, upon Paul, particularly Romans and Galatians, at that place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. Now this is all good. And this has led us to justification by faith and the Protestant Reformation and the birth of the evangelical wing of the church. 
How many of us here are so-called Protestants, by the way? Hands up. Yeah. How many are so-called Roman Catholics? Yeah. How many of us are Messianics? How many of us are still working out what we are? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There's one church. And all these do not... How many free church? Oh, right. So they're not Protestants. But you're not reformed, yeah. And if I use the word evangelicia, it means different things. So forgive me, I'm British. Yeah. Um, but he's asking the right question. And so he comes up with the doctrine of soteriology, how are we saved? That Christ's righteousness is given to us because he died in our place. Faith is against works and the law is against the gospel. This is the general position because he's contrasting the works of indulgences and the works of the Catholic Church with the gospel of free grace. And he's seeing this as the same situation that the Apostle Paul faced in the early church and especially the Judaizers in the letter to the Galatians. By the way, if you'd like a copy of the PowerPoint, It will be on my website after this talk, if the Wi-Fi works. If you'd like a copy of my book, let me plug my book. I bought about 10 copies with me. I don't want to take them back to England. Uh, If you can pay something, they normally cost £10, €15. If you can't, if you're in a monastic order that doesn't have any money of your own or whatever, please take a copy. Um, But I don't want to take them back with me, so I'll, I'll give them back to you if there are any left, so further. Um, but the, um, the issue is that he develops this Protestant theology and praxis against the Catholics and also against the Jews. So we stand by justification by faith, that faith without works is sufficient for salvation and alone justifies, but the consequences are If you read Galatians 2, verse 16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be Justified, dikaiadzo, dikaiosine, tzedakah. So we are justified, we are declared righteous, and we become a Christian, a believer in Jesus, as our means of justification. The works of the law are seen as self-effort and works righteousness, whether it's the Catholic indulgences or the rabbinic mitzvot, And faith in Jesus is opposed to our moral effort. And uh, so in his commentary on Galatians, I just want you to notice that anti-papism and anti-Judaism are pretty much the same thing for Luther. So by Paul we absolutely deny the possibility of self-merit. God never yet gave to any person grace and everlasting life as a work, as a reward for merit. The opinions of the papists are the intellectual pipe dreams of idle pates, idle heads, that serve no other purpose but to draw men away from the true worship of God. 
The papacy is founded on hallucinations. I'm sorry, Johannes. <laughs> what are these false apostles doing? Paul cries. They are turning law into grace and grace into law. So the main Lutheran issue is law bad, grace good. But the psalmist says, Oh, how I love thy law. On it I meditate day and night. Yeshua came to fulfill the law, not to destroy it. They are changing Moses into Christ and Christ into Moses by teaching that besides Christ and his righteousness, the performance of the law is necessary unto salvation. They put the law in the place of Christ. They attribute the law to the law, the power to save, a power to belong that Christ, that belongs to Christ only. Yes, but. And this is the traditional Reformation perspective that the law and the gospel are two doctrines that are absolutely contrary. That the law is the word of perdition, of being lost. The word of wrath, the word of sadness, the word of pain, the voice of the judge. Luther only has three uses of law, really. To show us our sin, to show us that we are judged and to turn us to Christ. And then the gospel is the word of salvation, the word of grace, the word of comfort, the word of joy. Now you say, Richard, what has this got to do with the Judensau and, Saint, uh, uh, and the martyrdom at Trent? And the answer is theology dictates activity. Now, I wish everybody did theology. And we all do theology, but we need to understand our, our, how our underlying theology leads to action and also how it can be manipulated. I don't have time to discuss this, but I've been wrestling with what is called justification theory. I became a believer in Yeshua in 1974. I started studying theology in 1977. I should have become a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant. Nice Jewish boy, but I ended up doing theology. And I tried to start with Paul and my professor was working with another professor called E.P. Sanders who was just writing his major book Paul and Palestinian Judaism which is one of the first books of what we call the new perspective on Paul because this old perspective that God is a God of retributive justice and that we are personally unable to achieve moral perfection is the traditional Protestant or certainly Lutheran position I'm sure there are Lutherans here who will challenge me on this uh, please do uh, I'm generalising but the problem with this model is that it doesn't really do justice to what we know of first century Palestinian Judaism and it is also as it says here introspective it speaks to the introspective conscience of Western European man rather than the collective identity of the Jewish people as a communal, corporate people of God. And uh, it, it's got other weaknesses and it's arguing that you know, the problems with this perspective which I'm calling the old perspective is that it says Judaism was a religion of merit. It wasn't. That is a Christian 
misinterpretation for polemical purposes. Yes, some Jews did think they could earn their way to heaven, just as I meet many people who call themselves Christians, who say, I try to be a good person. But in general, you cannot now argue today that Judaism at the time of Yeshua and Paul was a religion of merit. Another problem, Judaism did not resolve Paul's burden of guilt. Well, actually, we don't know that he felt guilty, except for Romans 7. And is Romans 7 about the pre-Christian Paul or the Paul who already knows his sin because he knows Jesus? And Paul says, I am a Jew, loyal to the customs of my ancestors. In Philippians 3, I was blameless according to the law. So this is a misinterpretation of Paul's Judaism. Other problems, uh, which I won't go into because I need to get on to the issues that I'm talking about today. But this gives us a theological background to where the anti-Judaism is coming from in the medieval period that Luther inherits. Now, I'm sorry the graphic here is not very good, but can you see a pig on the left? And can you see a child's body here? A child's body with scars and lacerations tied up. And what can you see here? A donkey. I was so pleased that you brought in the donkey. Because actually these symbols of the pig the martyred child and the donkey are so much of a package in medieval anti-Jewish polemic. And we are talking about the linking of the Judensau, which is on the left, the Jew pig. Is that a good translation? Sounds so insulting, doesn't it? So atrocious at both the theological, the political and the social level. If you want to really attack somebody's arguments, you insult them and you use humour. And this is the method that medieval Christianity was using, both Catholics and Protestants, all guilty. And uh, so I'm just going to talk about this. Judensau is the Jewish pig. St. Simon, the small boy who is martyred, or supposedly martyred, and Messiah's donkey, and there I've put from a messianic picture, riding on an ass's colt. One of the issues that is under the surface of the text here is a fear that the Jews are going to find the Messiah again and are going to take over medieval Europe, just as the Christians were afraid of the Turks coming back to power. So they also feared a Jewish Messiah arising in Iraq, Babylon, and coming to take over. And my period, by the way, is the 13th century, so I, I, I fit these stories together. The Jewish pig, which is, there's another um, uh, woodcut of the Jewish pig and the boy and the uh, donkey, the Jewish pig is a very common theme in German church architecture. There are over 30 different examples of De Judensau. Is that how you pronounce it? So getting rid of the one in Wittenberg is not enough. 
And actually, I'm not sure if they ever will, because the figures in red are the ones that have been removed. And the other ones, there's still one in Erfurt. Did you know that? Uh, there's still Wittenberg, Brandenburg, Metz, Colmar. I don't even know all these places. Nuremberg, um, Regensburg. So this is a very common motif because in the medieval period, the way you teach theology is through pictures and stories. And the cathedral is like the cinema or the YouTube of the day. So just some of these examples. There's the Jewish sow at Brückenturm in Frankfurt. And above is the body of a child, St. Simon. So the insult for the pig... The Jews, I'm, I'm going to just read Martin Luther to um, describe this for you, but I'll do it when I come to the Wittenberg one. And the martyrdom of St. Simon, they go together. They cannot be separated. So there's a really dangerous spiritual darkness here, which is something we have to pray for cleansing and forgiveness and reconciliation from. Uh, our there, again, um, where, I can't remember where that one's from. I, I, these are all on my website, or will be, so you can download them. Uh, the, the rabbi is feeling in the sows behind. There are young Jews suckling from the sows' mouth, uh, teats. There's another rabbi there, and there's the devil. And they're looking up, and they're seeing the martyrdom of St. Simon. So the very bad things in the Talmud and the rabbis and the Jews lead to the killing of the innocent, martyred child. Horrible, isn't it? There's a Bamberg cloister, Corbel with a Jew-beast hybrid. So that they played with this picture of the pig. And there's the Wittenberg Judensau and uh, Regensburg Cathedral and uh, the woodcut from Germany, Nuremberg. Uh, I've just seen that one. Let me, there's St. Simon at the top again. Uh, and this is the way that you attack your enemies before you kill them. You ridicule them. Many sculptures, however, still remain uncommented, continuing to stand amidst other testaments of medieval humour. Yet both their existence and the negligent, even indifferent handling of that fact, are indeed no matter to laugh about. This is an article on medieval humour. But it's no laughing matter. And it's still there. So uh, Luther has his own uh, version in Wittenberg. And my frozen yeah I thought this might happen so let me read it and say uh, might be helpful just in case because uh, I'm having computer problems but uh, yeah I do need it why did it do this never trust children or technology <laughs> yeah too so uh, I'll read what Luther says about um, this. You probably are familiar with this already. Some uh, others may not be. I was already 
vielleicht kennen manche da. Let's see if we can get it up as well. Thank you, Thomas. Yeah. Here in Wittenberg, on our parish church, there is a sow carved in stone. Under her, young piglets and Jews lie sucking. Great. Behind the sow stands a rabbi who lifts the sow's right leg. And he pulls her rear over her. He bends down and looks most studiously under her rear. at the Talmud inside. Ah, und da, da drinne, gibt's da so the Talmud is in the pig's yeah. anus. Yeah. Yeah. So da As if he wanted to read and see something difficult and special. So an educated honorable man who was an enemy of the filthy lies of the Jews, had such an image made. Thus, even today, among the Germans, it is said, to put it rudely, of one who has great wisdom without cause, Where did he read that? Out of the rear of a sow. And then Luther goes on. Luther loves this type of humor. In, uh, in English we call it scatological humor. It is humor about the unmentionable parts of the body. It is humor about human excrement. It is nasty, vicious, shit. I shouldn't say that, sorry, take that from the tape. I said excrement because I'm trying to be intellectual. But, uh, so what you have, let's see if this works. Uh, next one, Thomas. Is, is then he talks about the meaning of Shem HaMeforash, which is the unpronounceable name, and he makes a play of it. There is muck, there is filth. Yeah. And now we come to the martyrdom of Simon Emo. And he is, uh, you said he was found in a river, sister, but there are three different versions. One is he is found in a river, the other is he is found in a ditch, And the other is that he is found in the tank that the, is in the bottom of the house of Simon, the Jew, which was also used as a mikvah, a ritual bath for the women. So this is the story. It was, as you said, the bestseller, printed as one of the early printing works. My German is not so good, but this is the account of the trial and the execution of these Jews. And the next one, please. And there's pictures and woodcuts of how the Jews 
did their ritual murder, and these are all on the website, so we'll go quickly through. But I was interested in the power behind this. And uh, the book that I was reading, Trent 1475, if you're interested, gives a very in good account of the social and political and economic factors behind what was going on. And we have this Prince Bishop, Johannes Hinderbach, who's there on the right hand of the picture he's painted, Bishop of Trent, whose two interests in life were power and piety. And he could not separate the two. So even as he was doing evil, he was convinced that he was acting out Christian truth. I've taken 30 minutes, so I'll stop in a couple of minutes. He was convinced that the gospel was telling him to persecute the Jews because the Jews persecuted Christ. And he was brought up academically to hear this anti-Jewish polemic. So he was also trying to build his own political position. He made bishop, but he didn't quite make cardinal. And he was a bit disappointed because people in his family had made pope. And so the more piety you show by attacking the Jews, the more likely you are to rise in the ecclesiastical hierarchy. Isn't this terrible? And yet it's still so true. And in all our power structures, we have to be careful. And we were hearing that yesterday. And then the, the anti-Jewish polemic is political and economic and religious. The Jews, there were three families there. Oh, yeah, that, and that, that's his tomb, by the way. I've done it. So the three families apparently were, uh, they found the body, and uh, the stories are various. The only record we have is the trial accounts of people who have been tortured. But we know that there are three families in Trent, the family of Samuel, the family of Tobias, the family of Engel. And all the names are printed in the books, so they become celebrities. And they are celebrating Passover in the year 5235 in the Jewish calendar. And they discover that this boy has gone missing on Saturday, or rather on Good Friday, and then they discover his body. And they think maybe the body has been placed there by Christians. Uh, they report it to the bishop but they are immediately arrested. And then th this family who are, you know, this is where I begin to weep, uh, because they're just Jewish people living in this town. They're different from the peasants because they're moneylenders. They have to be moneylenders. They're not allowed to do ordinary trades. They're not allowed to own property. Uh, and they're doctors. My doctor's Jewish. And uh, they're spending Passover together and they discover that uh, this child's body is there and, of course, they are arrested. Now, this is, was official Catholic teaching, the celebration of St. Simon of Trent, until just recently, 1960, it was taken out of the celebration of saints, as far as I'm familiar. But even today, there are websites that are saying this still happened. And there is still a Catholic tradition that hasn't completely denied it. So this is a website I got on from a couple of days ago. The case of St. Simon Emo is a, a historical fact. And there's even one professor at the Hebrew University, Professor Toaf, 
who is the son or was the son of the chief rabbi of, of Rome, Toaf, who has written a book that caused a lot of controversy in Israel because he said it's just possible that there were some Jews who used blood for their rituals. He got into a lot of trouble. And it's still a blazing controversy because of the politically sensitive work here. So I now cut to the present and to close in prayer. Uh, just go back one slide, uh, Thomas. Thank you. The pain that I feel as a Jew who sees this in the history of my people and the history of the church is that this is, is just the same as the Holocaust, only on a smaller scale. The attack on Jews because they are Jews, their ritual um, accusations that just as they killed Christ, they kill a child for their sacrifices. And that if you want to demonstrate true Christian piety, you persecute the Jews. It's not very far away from the, the German National Church and the, days, the dark days of the Second World War. My emotions get the better of my academic intellectual processing here. And I then have to just move to prayer. And I also go to the present day, and if we go to the next slide, can you translate into English? And stand up and speak up. Yeah. So it says that the uh, committee of the, it's basically the, the, the committee of the German um, uh, church, Lutheran church um, festival, um, uh, explaining why uh, they uh, don't want um, uh, Christ, Christian Jews groups that are trying to evangelize um, the uh, Jews to take part in, the, uh, in this church um, celebration week. Um, and it said that they uh, made a, a, a statement in 1999, or they took over a statement from the uh, Lutheran Church ruling body in 1999 that said that because of the special relationship uh, Oh, oh, well, that, that explains the special relationship between the churches and the Jews, uh, the church and the Jews, and it said that. Um, yeah. I've got a translation here, actually. Um, yeah, that's right, but it doesn't point. say the main thing. Yeah. It doesn't actually say what the, 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 the explanation was in that, and the declaration was in 1999. Okay. Uh, well, this is really the statement of the Kirchentag saying that the. Messianic Jews are not able to participate yeah, right. in the Stuttgart festival. And if yeah, we go. It's only the headline. Yes, yeah, only the headline. Right. Yeah. Um, and then the if, if you go to the next one. Uh, four reasons. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll just give you four reasons in a moment. Uh, so the Committed to Jewish Christian Dialogue, Christy Meyer and Christina Alster Au, in conversation about the background to the renewal of the decision of the Bureau of the German Protestant Church Congress why Christian groups with Jewish missionary intention and practice are not allowed to participate in the church days. Now, the website links are below. But basically, Messianic Jews, and our friend Vladimir Pickman, we have some people in his congregation, they are not allowed to participate in the church 
festival in Stuttgart. And the reasons given are because they are missionaries. But actually the reason is because they're Jews. Because all Christians are called to have a part in the mission of God, the Missio Dei. And there is a mission for the church to share the good news of the Messiah. There is a mission for Israel to live as a light to the nations. So they're being singled out, I think, not because they're missionaries, but because they're Jews. And I'm not saying this is anything like as serious as what happened in the past, but it is a sign to me of the difficulties that we still have today of allowing Jews to be Jews and allowing Jewish believers in Yeshua to celebrate their faith in Messiah as Jews. So the prayer that one of my friends has put together, I was at a meeting in Berlin just a couple of days ago, I thought we might just stand and say this. Can we read? Yeah, yeah, okay. Do sit down. Yeah, okay, yes. Okay. No, no, please sit down. Please sit down. Thank you. Yes. I'm watching my time. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So see if you agree with this, and if you don't agree with it, that's fine. But in the history of our people. Uh, we look um, full of gratitude at the line of blessing of the past. We thank you for the Reformation, for the rediscovery of the Gospel, and for the spreading of the Bible. We thank you for all spiritual renewal and uh, renewal mo movements since then. We thank you uh, for the breakthrough in, uh, into world missions and also um, the missions in our own nations. We thank you for gathering Israel in its own uh, land. Uh, we thank you for um, the, um, yeah, the, the uh, thinking again about the Jewish roots of our faith. Yeah. And the next one. Uh, right. And at the same time, uh, we recognize today the, uh, the dark side of the, of the church in the, Ref of the Reformation time. And uh, we confess... Um, uh, in um, identificationally the uh, guilt of our mothers and fathers we uh, um, confess the um, uh, that's um, the libel and uh, condemnation of the Jews through, um, by the uh, reformer Martin Luther and our church Father forgive we confess uh, to you um, the persecution of uh, Anabaptists and uh, also the guilt, our part, our guilty role, uh, of the guilty role of the Reformation, uh, the, the leaders of the Reformation and of our church in their death. Father, forgive. We confess the rejection of the gifts of the Spirit and the uh, skepticism towards the Holy Spirit since the time of the Reformation. Father, forgive. We confess the um, confessional division in our nation, um, uh, the uh, wars of faith, or wars in the name of faith, and uh, the uh, guilt of bloodshed in the name of the church. Father, forgive. We confess um, to you um, the way in which the Bible has been reinterpreted uh, since the Enlightenment. Uh, we made 
the human um, reasoning uh, to be the, um, the, the yardstick of all things. Yeah. Thank you. We, actually, we shouldn't play it all because we need an English version as well. But these are the reflections of one pastor on the need for forgiveness, particularly in the uh, Protestant church. And, yeah. Yeah. So I won't um, yeah, go back to the white crucifixion because I'll, I'll close with a meditation just on the fact that Yeshua is with his people yeah. and always has been and in their suffering. And as our sister so eloquently said, that we as members of the body of Messiah, the church, whether we're from Israel or the nations, can only know God's forgiveness and mercy. through the beauty of Yeshua. So let me close with a prayer. Again, Lord, I pray that the things that I've said and the thoughts of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. Lord, we ask forgiveness. We commit ourselves to true repentance for the sins of our families and our traditions and our peoples. We ask that by your Spirit we will not only know repentance but true reconciliation and renewal of relationships and restoration of love and trust and that you will turn weeping into rejoicing. Take away the guilt of our sin. and the sins of our people by cleansing us in the blood of Yeshua to your praise and glory. Amen. Thank you.